Welcome to the Beastified Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. This is a show dedicated to inspiring you to treat your body and mind the way it should be treated. Each week we delve deep with some of the brightest and most forward-thinking out-of-the-box minds in health, consciousness, mindset and spirituality. Our intention is to fuse and unlock the conscious warrior within and shift the balance in the current paradigm. Deep and often intense, these conversations are released every Wednesday and are designed to inspire, educate, motivate and encourage you to discover, uncover, unlock and unleash your potential. In this episode of the Beastified podcast, we're joined by Michael Garfield. Michael is a writer, a speaker, a visual artist and a musician. Michael just has such an amazing ability to articulate the difficult and complex diving into this world and it's absolutely mind-blowing to be honest. But as you listen to this, you will see that his words and energy puts behind them are just stunning to say the least. But in this episode, we get quite deep into the conscious journey, the awakening or enlightenment process. We also dig into the cusp that the human race is upon in terms of the human race going to the next level being enslaved by a single's perspective. We also touch on the genetic code, the soul, evolution and improvisation, and much more. This is quite a deep episode, but I know it's packed full of mind-shifting information, so hopefully you enjoy. So without further ado, Michael Garfield. Michael, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Really looking forward to this episode. Yeah, thanks. Sounds fun. Just checking out you guys' website, and it looks like you're in... You're in on some good stuff. I haven't actually heard your your podcast before, but uh, everything that I've read on your site says that you guys are it, doing the good work. So it sounds like it will have a fun conversation. Yeah, yeah we, like, we like to believe you are, <laughs> Michael. When I first um, came across your actually came across your amazing work, I was really drawn by the way that you were explaining like the current reality and the way that you were putting things across and like in a completely different consciousness, in my opinion, as well. And I actually feel that when my mind was processing what you were saying, I actually feel that my own consciousness was expanding. <laughs> <laughs> right on. That's good. I was I was uh, really inspired as a kid by reading uh, the artist Alex Gray's book, The Mission of Art. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. No, uh, no. He's an American visionary artist. He's a painter, and he started off uh, as a medical illustrator in a morgue. And at some point realized, he said that he had a vision of, of the, uh, the spirit of this woman who he, he was pouring lead into the ear of this uh, cadaver and that he felt like he was haunted by the spirit of this deceased woman who was urging him to be more respectful uh, with her body and the body of the other people, that these aren't just you know, weird curiosities, uh, you know, to experiment upon, but that they, that in some sense that they're sacred because they're, you know, they used to be a, a person. And so, he, you know, that they, he, it changed the way that he thought about his art and he started thinking about the responsibility of the artist to create a message that means something that like modern art is usually just about art, for art's sake, that it doesn't have to mean anything. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be communicating 
anything. And that his book, the mission of art is all about how art actually is a, like a, a vessel or a channel for the state of the consciousness of the artist to, uh, be transmitted or to like to resonate in the mind of the viewer. Like the term that he actually uses is to plant a seed of liberation in the mind stream of the viewer. So I read that when I was in college and it changed the way that I relate to the work that I'm making in whatever medium that it's like, you know, I really, you know, as a creative people, we have, you know, and everybody's creative in some way or another. And we have all of us, uh, an opportunity, and for some people, you know, we feel it really palpably as a responsibility to say things that we want to spread. You know, not not mm-hmm. just to not just to uh, express ourselves for the sake of being heard, but yeah. to really to really make. L- to, to, to make ourselves transparent to the message that we're not choosing to express, but is choosing us to express itself through us, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's like you want to express the value of your words. Yeah, the, the, it's like that maybe, maybe the most important thing, you know, I, I think of it in terms of, uh, it, this is really poorly understood, I think, in, in Western civilization, and, I, and, and that includes me. But there's this whole thing in the East about uh, the direct transmission of enlightenment through a guru, like through sitting at the pr- in the presence of an awakened person. And I think that there's something like that going on here with with art and and other media in general. That that it's like everything that we create is imprinted with the. You know, I mean, there's, it's not, I don't know how else to talk about this without it sounding kind of like woo woo, new agey kind of, but it's like, there's, it's like whenever we make something, like if you think about like a Zen calligraphy painting, you know, it's just that one stroke. But in that one stroke is embedded, uh, the, the awakened consciousness of that calligrapher. And, you know, like a Zen master can tell work that's been made by another Zen master. You know, mm-hmm. just because it bears that frequency, you know, mm-hmm. and and uh, the vi- the the visionary artist Robert Venosa said that he felt that his art was sub was a, a a politically dangerous subversive thing, even though he was just drawing all this sort of like psychedelic spirit world type stuff. Because he said, if you don't have any personal experience with this and it doesn't register, it doesn't resonate with you, but you still see one of his paintings and it has some sort of subconscious effect on the viewer, whether you like it or not. And so he felt Mm -hmm. like just getting his work out at into people was helping to um, spread this, this uh, deeper experience of in relation to the invisible worlds that we all are, you know, like uh, surrounded by and embedded in. I, was, I like before how you said about how that book sort of changed your consciousness in a way. And it's, that's something that I'm really interested in because I think it's a ride, let's say, and I think, but it's maybe a journey as well. And it's, it, it's, but it's a ride that we've all got to like just enjoy, I think, as well, this conscious journey. But I think to take it a few steps back, I think people jump onto this conscious journey or shift at different times and it's really fascinating to me. Mm. I think it's a I think it's a ride also that people need to go on when they're ready to go on it. Yeah. You can't just go on to this journey 
willing uh, unwillingly and just get dragged along because mm-hmm. you'll not you'll not gather anything you want to hear. Yeah, well, well maybe we don't maybe we don't have a choice. Like maybe, you know, I mean, there's a there's a lot of really excellent research on the brain now that we didn't have just a few decades ago. Yeah. And we know better now than we ever did that most of what we take uh, responsibility for, like most of our, our thoughts and choices and, and actions are actually occurring, you know, a few seconds before mm-hmm. we're aware of them, you know, yeah, that, yeah. that, that, that uh, impulse to move your hand and reach for that cup of coffee or to tell someone that you love them or whatever, that these are really like uh, reflexes in a, in a sense. And that everything that, 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 uh, we're doing is really out of our control in like a very real way. Like this guy had a brain damage. And so he was no longer able to walk without thinking about it. And when, and he said, you know, he's like, when you realize how much of your life you're doing without actually thinking about it, you realize that, you know, we, we really, we really are not really in control of anything. And, mm. and this is the, you know, this, uh, to, again, this is the, the stance that's taken by the, uh, you know, the, the people that now we were able to image the brains of meditators and we're able to identify people who have no activity in the default mode network, which is like the, the cluster of brain regions responsible for creating an, a, a personality, you know? Mm. And so these people have, no uh, little voice in their head going off all the time. Like they, they don't have a little like ego chatter, you know, they just mm-hmm. experience things and, and they report that, that in that state, uh, which, you know, some people would call like an enlightened state that they don't, they don't feel like they're actually doing anything that they're just, that it's just happening all of it spontaneously and I think that that's probably like if and so like uh I I've been reading this book by one of these one of these uh like Advaita non-dual philosophers this guy Ramesh Balsakar and the book is called uh Your Head in the Tiger's Mouth and it's like the 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 whole message that he's saying is that you're not in control of the moment that you wake up you're not in control of the moment that you become enlightened any more than you're in control of the moment that you wake up from a nap. You know, mm. it, it's something that happens uh, spontaneously and naturally. And that the, the metaphor of like having your head in the tiger's mouth is like, you're not in control of when the tiger bites you. Mm-hmm. you know? Michael, oh, sorry. Oh, I, I, was just, yeah. I was just curious, Michael. Um, do you think ready, people are ready to feel like out of control? Because a lot of people like to feel like they're in control. They're in control of the, the life, the finances, the, the health. <laughs> like, they, feel like, they feel like they've taken complete control of everything. Well, I encourage those people to read a book by Alan Watts called The Wisdom of Insecurity, mm-hmm. uh, which was one of these books that, that I'm still going back to constantly. Because you're right. Like The reason that we have... Uh, you know, a personalities at all seems to be associated with this need to manage the dizzying flow of information in our lives and keep track of social obligations and, you know, orient ourselves in time. And, and yet by doing so, 
by, by insisting on control, we're not only lying to ourselves about how responsible we are for even the smallest things, you know, like even, even like to like pick up this phone requires so, so much incredible coordinated effort. Like it takes, I don't know if you ever heard uh, Carl Sagan in Cosmos had this great line. He said, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first create the universe. Wow. You know, that's, like that's every single thing that's happening requires everything else happening. So we can't, you know, I think that there's, there are circumstances definitely where like, it's good to talk about being able to, to take control of your finances, take control of your health. And we can talk about those things and, and to deny that that's uh, like a, a valid way to interpret reality, I think mm -hmm. is a mistake. I think a lot of people who, who want to, you know, deny the existence of the ego and, and the whole world of appearances are cutting off half of their body in a sense, you know, you're cutting off half of, of the human experience. But I think it's the problem with trying to remain in control is that you're, it's like you're trying to, to live a lie basically. Like, yeah. you know, you know that you're not really in control. And I think so like maybe the better thing would be to think of it in terms of like surfing, you know, yeah. that there's that with surfers, they're aware that they're on the wave that they're not going to control the wave and that that uh, the best surfers get into a flow state which is the state where they're not they're not thinking of themselves as as yeah. an individual that's trying to control an external world they're mm -hmm. not making that inside outside distinction they're just giving their full attention to the moment and in in so doing they're able to act with a, a fluidity and an intelligence that we can't actually access or apply when all of our mental resources are dominated by this internal conversation. Yeah, it's it's like what fascinates me is like people's ability to say like they can control time and they control the essence of time. Well, it's a, it's impossible because time is endless. It's it's eternal. <laughs> and that they actually think that they live in on this twenty four hour system that they can dictate the, the whole time of the day, mm. like. This this that was my schedule time. So you feel like it's all planned out, but even if one thing's out of line, they become out of line. They become out of sync with who they are just because of that out of control moment, and that's it. They've completely lost the whole day. Yeah, yeah. Well, are you are you uh, familiar with the, the the Greeks had two different kinds of time that they talked about? They talked about Chronos, which is like the time of clocks, which at that time there really weren't clocks in the way that we know them today, right? Like we didn't have, we didn't, that, that stuff didn't come around for like almost another 2000 years, but they, mm -hmm. but they had a sense of the orderly, uh, metered quantifiable time that we now think of as like, you know, stopwatch time, calendar time. Mm -hmm. But then they had another time called Kairos and Kairos was the, the qualitative time, you know, like the subjective, like the timing of things. Like now is the right time to ask that girl out. Yeah. You know, now mm. is the right time to, you know, make that Facebook post or your or whatever. You know, that that this that the Kairos is about 
catching these these like subtler currents that are you know it's it's more of an intuitive relationship to the quality of our experience moment to moment and mm-hmm. and I think that like the way that modern society is organized and this is this is really lavishly and eloquently uh, discussed in Douglas Rushkoff's book Present Shock, which is all about this this topic that we're discussing right now, and I highly recommend it to people, is how our society has lost the balance between that sense of of uh, timing and sacred time with you know the the clock time and like the the time of civilization. And then I think as well, I was just going to say, Mike, I think as well, there's a lot of like sensory input. Uh-huh. It's hard it's hard to filter through that, like what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, so how do you how do you think uh like for me one of the big the big questions is how do we get people to take a to step out of the chronos clock time slavery for just a, yeah. long enough to experience this other this possibility for this mm-hmm. other kind of relationship to the the passage of moments and to yeah. recognize that like you know that you know, this is the whole basis for astrology, which is that, you know, one minute is not identical to another minute because there are there are these qualitative dimensions to yeah. a moment that distinguish it. You know, that's or like, you know, uh, Terence McKenna talked about this and a lot of ancient calendrical systems like the Mayan system talk about yeah. about certain days of the year being be- or or like uh, biodynamic agriculture talks about this that there are certain days that are better for planting crops certain days that are better for you know harvesting them certain days that are better for going to war certain days that are better for staying home you know yeah. so like how do we how do we get people to sensitize to this sort of subtle and invisible landscape of the qualities of different moments in a way that we can bring some humanity and some sanity back into yeah. our, our like slavery to Google calendar, et cetera. Yeah. For me, Michael, I think something that I've been doing a lot is, and I've realizing that I don't do it enough is just taking a step back and just breathing, mm. just breathing and taking in, just realizing that where, where you are right now is just in the, one of the most beautiful aspects of creation where you exact where the place that you are now on this planet is beautiful. And just taking that one little step back and just taking that, big deep breath and we just go and take it all in and that's what that's one big thing that has really helped me yeah yeah to get away from all the crap <laughs> basically yeah I'm, I'm very similar like i believe in it's just taking each moment as understanding it is a moment mm-hmm. and like like you said dan taking a brief breath and understanding like this is just another part of another day which is going to be an internal day just because we we're the ones who have given this process of time. We we're the ones who have given it a twenty four hour clock. Mm-hmm. No one else has. Like snakes don't believe in a twenty four hour clock. They live in they live like a whole they're system just... with like when it gets dark, like their body rests, and when it when it um, dawns arise, they come arise. Mm-hmm. So a snake lives in like, each moment, whereas humans don't. We live in like some people want to stay awake all night and they want to live in this whole different existence to compare to like yeah, how their biological clock. Michael, something else I wanted to mention before because you touched on about that uh, about a study 
Was that study called um, The Holographic Universe by any chance? Uh, I've read that book, and I find it? it a fascinating... I mean, it's been so long since I read it, I can't really speak about it in a yeah. meaningful way. But I remember loving loving that book. No, I... There was a... Uh, See this? What was this particular in reference to? Um, you're talking about the brain scans, or yeah, so, so something that I, it was just I haven't I haven't proper went in depth into it, but there was something that I I pulled out of it was that when they were doing all these uh, complicated experiments, which are very hard to go into, but the basic gist of it that is that they figured out that when they were trying to monitor consciousness, it was known it was being watched. Yeah. Okay. So there was well, there's. Um... I don't know if they talked about that in in Michael Talbot's book, The Holographic Universe, but they did uh, around that time that that book was written. There was a study going on at Princeton uh, at the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab, and you can look this stuff up now at the Global Consciousness Project website. I think is still active and and still has a lot of their their old papers online where they were examining the relationship between uh, like focused intention and the outcome of random events. Is that the stuff you're talking about? Where, where like they, yeah. they found that, that you could, uh, there was a small but significant effect in if you, if you got a group of people to focus and say, well, we want the dice to roll high instead of rolling low. Yeah, you know, yeah, or we want this uh, this electron to decay and give us, you know, a, a a a one instead of a zero. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly it. Yeah, and that's that's mysterious because we're still, you know, in the in terms of like the paradigm of control, findings like that don't make sense because we're looking for a mechanism between the like the experimental subject and the the physics concerning the role of the dice or the decay of that particle you know we're yeah. we're still looking for a way that we can like hack this system so that that maybe we can like exert a you know a magical control over our surroundings yeah but it doesn't really seem it doesn't really seem to to uh, be that way. Cause like one of the things that they found was that, that their results were independent of time. And so they could take the results out of a, they could have a computer spit out a series of random numbers and then encrypt that and keep it under a password. And then two weeks later run the experiment where they're trying to get people to adjust the outcome of the, the numbers that they ran two weeks ago. And their, their findings were just as, as statistically valid as they were if they were doing it at that very moment. So you get into this question of, you know, are we, it's, you know, we're not separate. Like the, this experimental subject isn't separate from the numbers that are coming out, you know? So is it really, does it really make sense to talk about this in terms of cause and effect? Or is this one event that's happening that's that appears to us as like distributed between different moments, but it's actually one phenomenon mm-hmm. and we're just, we're, we are the human end of that phenomenon. So we have this, this, uh, ha- this instinctive reflexive habitual, uh, tendency to try and like tell a story about it where so-and-so did something and this, and then this happened, you know? Mm-hmm. So we create a story out of what's actually just one thing 
you know, and we break it down intellectually into different things and then assign one of them a cause and one of them an effect. But it seems that what we're finding is that cause and effect are mental abstractions and that they don't actually, it, that it doesn't actually work that way mm-hmm. it, physically. That it's not, that it's really, everything is happening at once. And so like when you get into, uh, there's like two different kinds of magical traditions. Typically, you know, you've got the the magic of like witches, like the feminine magical disposition, and then you got the magic of like uh, wizards and warlocks. You know, like the masculine tradition. And what you notice is uh, historically, the men tend to look at magic as a way of controlling nature, of like conquering personal will and using will as an instrument to achieve a particular effect. Whereas Mm. feminine magical schools tend to be about harmonizing with the natural cycles and like finding that same power in alignment with forces that are greater than the individual and that are, you know, like, like alignment with the lunar and tidal forces, you know, and Mm. recognizing that there's, there's something greater there. And so these are, those are two different ways of like, of telling a story about relationship that seems to be not really a relationship at all, but one thing that's observing itself from a human perspective and then coming up with like masculine and feminine ways of talking about it. I just wanted to tell you about one of my little scenarios that I've played out a few times in my head. And I've told this, I've already told this to Chris but one of my deep thoughts is maybe like in a different time or a different dimension or even a different galaxy or maybe a different world or even inside a different consciousness that we one day decided all to be like conscious warriors. And I think like wherever our souls of existence were at that moment, like we decided to embark on like this incredible journey. And like let's say that we had a choice to go like in time wherever we wanted to go uh-huh. or what planet we wanted to choose. So like we chose Earth and it, it was known that like Earth's on the cusp of this brilliant like shift in balance. Mm-hmm. But however, in knowing that, like when we go, when, when our like our energy strikes the earth, and like we're reborn again in this human form, we we'll have to regain everything that we've already known and rediscover the journey and find the inner warrior again. Mm-hmm. There's stuff about the soul, and I think that yeah, I th- I mean, it, there's who's to say really, right? But it seems yeah. from my own experience that I've come to kind of a similar perspective as yours that like that there's there's a greater uh yeah, there's, field there's something deeper clear isn't there there's, yeah like there's a greater field of of uh intelligence that doesn't that's not limited in the way that we understand limitation in in space and time and that it enters into these like lower dimensional aspects of itself in order Mm -hmm. to have the experience of limitation. Like this is a pretty common point in a lot of the esoteric disciplines. This is something that uh, if you go uh, one of a couple summers ago, I binge listened to all of William Irwin Thompson's lectures on archive.org he's got a lecture series from the seventies. They're called uh, uh, the time falling bodies take to light is based on a book by the same name. And in that he talks a lot about the, the ancient 
mystery schools, like the Egyptian mystery school, and how their religious imagery was was all a code for the way that the sort of all the omnipotent God mind, you know, this like, or what in modern language we would call sort of like the field of all possibility, like the quantum field of all possibility sort of breaks down into polarities, you know, light and dark. And, and uh, that basically in, in the Egyptian school, there's like, I think it was Set and Osiris are aspects of a, a, the same soul, but it's it's so vast and so multidimensional that it cannot manifest as a single individual. So mm-hmm. we get so we get these we get these pairs, and that's you know that's the new age stuff behind like uh, twin flames and soulmates and stuff is that there's this intuition of a higher dimension of of experience that we can only glimpse because it it actually requires four eyes instead of two to yeah. like see that next thing and then maybe you know maybe in the future of human evolution when we learn to to link up our minds then we'll start becoming more aware of these these uh, subtler and more multidimensional aspects of reality that it'll be obvious to us in a way that like certain things about being an adult are not, are obvious to an adult, but not to a child, you know, mm-hmm. like we just lack the ability. We lack the, the complexity and the, the wisdom to like see stuff that's that, that uh, vast. But, yeah. but I think, yeah, I think, I mean, the question ultimately would be, and this is like my question for you, right? What, what value do you get out of seeing the world in that way? Like, how does that help you in your life? Like, I mean, what, what practical value do you think there is, even if it's, you know, setting aside whether it's true or not, right? Whether it's, this is a factual story, like, is it a useful story? Mm. I, th- I think it it must be in a way I like Michael because it it helps us actually project what our um, vision of the universe is and it's we want to project it as a vision of consciousness and awakening and so when we actually witness stuff like garbage on TV and and people talking down about one another you can kind of drift away from it because you can push yourself away from that direction because it's it's where you it's what you attract is what you're opening your mind to. Uh-huh. So when you're opening your mind to this new level of thinking, you start to gain a higher perspective and you start to see everything in a better light. Mm. That's how I view it. So, I mean, do you 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 think that it, it improves your relationships with other people because you you see them as, like, amnesiac godlings um, or something? It's like... <laughs> to be honest, Michael, I wouldn't say it improves my relationship with many people... It, but it improves my relationship with the people who I'm connected to, like Dan, because now me and him understand a lot of how we're thinking, and we know our consciousness is on the same level because we've talked about our consciousness yeah. in our life and how our view of the universe. And when you start opening up the other areas of people, and maybe them are still not on that level of you are, but it's up to us to educate them 
and hopefully they can transition with us I think so we can grow together. I think as well, Michael, by, by putting yourself in these positions where you associate yourself with other people, it also helps you expand your consciousness. Mm-hmm. Like, like I always said before when I first started this podcast, that by when I've listened to a few of your talks on, on the internet, by just listening to your perspective and the way that you put things across with your amazing language, it, it actually really opened my mind up even further. And that's what I think the beauty is, is connecting with many different people, which ultimately opens your consciousness and helps you along your conscious journey. Like, there's um, a great saying which says, um, you are the average of the five people you spend your most time with. Oh, I heard that recently, and that's terrifying! <laughs> it is. It's terrifying, especially um, the type of people who a lot of people hang around with. Like, I think as well, with like the, the strains of society, where they try and like, place people, like, where, like, here's an example, where people do do jobs that they don't want to do, mm. and then you're, and say, like, for example, someone's educating themselves and thinking out the box, like we've all been in that position, and you, you have you have to go to, you have to do the job that society says you have to do. So you're in this you're in this loophole, associating yourself with all these different people who are not on the same level as you. So it it, it hinders your development of your consciousness. That's what I feel. I think that you know that part of the I think the the assumption that this worldview yeah you know supposes is that. You and I are every bit as amnesiac as the next guy. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so, like, I was on, um, I've been on like, probation, you know, because it's the United States and we, this is a, a, a prison industrial thing over here. It's just, so yeah, yeah a, I think, you know, a nightmare I think, of. I think, I think the whole world's like that. Yeah. Oh, well, maybe, maybe it is. Uh, I hope it's not. I hope yeah, I so really hope it's not. But but yeah, the, we live in this this time where there's uh you know, people are really eager to uh you know, sell weapons to police cuz they're 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 uh you know, it's like a new market, you know? Like let's take the stuff from the Iraq war and then resell it to a local police department. And so we yeah. get, you know, this this issue but, okay, but c- cutting through all of that, getting into all of that, <laughs> I was on probation a couple a couple of years, uh, and I in the process of my my arrest and having to do all this stuff is you know it was a uh, it was like a a deferred thing. It was like a slap on the wrist. You know, I was never convicted for anything, but they they wanted to they wanted to run me through this, this system, you know, and, and I felt like I learned so much through that by meeting the people that work on the other side of that dynamic. And there's, you know, it really taught me that there's to have so much compassion for the, you know, the people that are on the other side of specifically in this case, the drug war, you know, that, None of these people knew anything about cannabis. None of them knew, none of, you know, none of, the only people that were sort of halfway literate about, about this substance and the way that it affects people and the way that it affects the community is, uh, were, you know, my defense attorney and the judge that ultimately, you know, reduced reduced and and like dismissed my my case mm. you know that that everyone else in the system was 
in some ways, like the county court officer, the arresting officer, these people were living in, first of all, they were living in a, a state of like constant anxiety and unpleasant, you know, like really terrible conditions where I was like, you know, I may be on, on, I may be supervised by the state right now, but I can go home and I can spend the day outside and this woman has to sit behind a desk in the courthouse every day dealing with people that hate her for without having ever met her before simply because yeah. she is playing this role in this. It's this a lot of, sorry, Michael, I was just going to say it's a lot of negative energy which is accumulated over time and it's sort of like plays on the system like this, this is her life. Right. Sort of right. And so, you know, like her, with her and with the, you know, like uh, I went in for an assessment to, you know, this woman had to determine whether or not I was at risk of any sort of like addictions or drug related problems. And in the conversation with this woman, it was uh, the, the, the counselor. It was so clear that, you know, that she's, and just as just like the arresting officer, just like the county court officer and all these other people, that it was really a lesson in, are you familiar with the term of the banality of evil? No, I've never heard of that. Okay, so, so the banality of evil is that evil is committed by ordinary people that are just trying to do the right thing. Yeah, and, I know. Yeah, so this was something that, this is a, a term that was coined after the Nuremberg trials, because all of these... Nazis were put on the stand and asked why they did what they did. And they said, well, you know, I was just trying to do the right thing for my country. I was just trying to protect my family from a perceived threat, you know. And mm -hmm. and this is the kind of, uh, you know, getting back to that issue of control, this is the kind of thing that, like, evil is something that comes out of, uh, in a weird way, out of love multiplied by the confusion that you are a separate thing that can be threatened, that the things that you love can be threatened and that yeah. you have to protect them. And that it, that automatically creates an on, like a boundary of us and them where like your, your compassion only extends to this line. Mm, yeah. You know? And so, and it, we can't really help doing that because we only have so much capacity to, to, you know, to think about things to like hold you know, in order to, like, love the entire biosphere, we'd really have to be able to hold the entire biosphere in our attention at any given time, which is impossible. Like, all we can really do is love the idea of it, you know? Uh -huh. And so, yeah. you know, just, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't, I mean, on the one hand, I was in that, I was in this sort of unenviable situation, super unpleasant situation where, you know, I had, I did think it sometimes, like, you know, maybe I'm in here to, like, make a positive impression on people, to show people something different, you know, to turn people on. But there was another side to it, which was that I'm not actually any better than any of these other people, because I'm not actually, ultimately, I'm not actually separate from any of them. I guess. Yeah. It's kind of, oops, sorry. I was just going to say it's kind of like you're on the journey with them people as well. Right. Like yeah. we're figuring this stuff out together. Hopefully, mm -hmm. hopefully they're figuring out that I, you know, that, that the assumptions that they were making about their, you know, why they do the things that they do need to be reexamined. And that's definitely what I came out with was that, you know, that this, this whole, like, this thing about the 99% 
of people at, up against the 1% of super wealthy people. It's like, well, if we're all, if we're, if what we're really going for is a society where everyone is valued and everyone is supported and everyone is cared for, then it's not going to happen with this sort of like French revolutionary attitude that we need to like cut the head off of the social superorganism. You know, yeah. it's like we, if we really want radical revolutionary lasting, awesome, very actually different change, then we need to come at this like, well, what solution is going to work for a hundred percent of the, the beings involved in this situation, yeah. you know? And so, and, Oddly enough, at the very end of my state supervision, I found out that that both my probation officer had left her job, that the county court officer had left her job, that that the uh, and that the the one of the judges involved in this situation had been uh, imprisoned for running guns, which well. was so it was like there was something that happened in that in that in that transaction over those couple of years where all of us sort of left this nasty situation that we were in for one reason or another. And I, I hope, I hope they got as much out of it as, as I did, because now it's like, you know, if you're not, if you're not going into battle, you talk about being a consciousness, like a conscious warrior. Like if you're yeah. not going into battle, uh, like there's a, there's a line in the Tao Te Ching about this, that like the, the wise, the wise man, only goes into battle with a a sense of grief because yeah. you know that you're fighting that this is one thing fighting itself and that oh, oh who was it there was this awesome quote i read recently about how the the realization that your that, that soldiers will drop the sword in mid strike that they'll be like in the middle of a being a, about to like behead someone and then yeah. they will realize that there's only one flesh that like we're literally all literally not metaphorically not spiritually but literally we're all bound together in the body of a single organism that is too big for us to understand or even really directly perceive but there yeah. it is and you know that swords just fall out of people's hands when they when they encounter this when they realize this and it's like fucking a man that's <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that I think uh, what I'd say to say there is like you, when you mentioned that there I just thought immediately we are all the universe and we are all just a togetherness and but at the end of the day we are all nothingness as well like we all we all believe we have an identity to something. We are, we all are, like, you're Michael Garfield, this is my identity, this is what I've created. But at the end of the day, you, Michael Garfield, you are just a piece of nothingness in this universe, just like I am, and just like Dan is, but together we are everything in the universe, all rolled into one, mm -hmm. with our thinking and our knowledge. I was going to say as well, Michael, I think as well, when you were talking about sort of like the, the strains of society before, I think... The way society is set up, it's so angled to make us think with like a single or like a singular perspective. Mm -hmm. And I feel that for a big, like big chunk of like our human history, there's like been forces working to hold this against us. Mm. And I think there's been like forces as well working to break away from this as well. But I think it's only over the last few years, in my opinion, where there's been this huge shift 
in, in a whole way, a whole, like, like, like I said before, a whole bunch of conscious warriors have like transcended on the world and there's like currently like a huge war in consciousness. That's what I feel. I, th- I think as well, though, we're using the right technology and the tools because right now we're using the whole mainstream media yeah, of the yeah. internet to out, out, outdo the whole technology of the, like television and we're reaching our own audience through this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, again, his, it's, it's important to keep a historical perspective on this stuff about how the internet is more, more distributed than TV, but it was also originally developed by the military industrial complex. And, you know, even, even in the Occupy movement, the, you know, the mesh networks that were being used in Occupy Washington by Occupy Washington were uh, given to them by DARPA, you know, because they were testing, you know, new distributed network technologies and Occupy looked like the right place to do it. And so there's this really intimate relationship between what we consider the light side and the dark side of things. And, you know, really, I think the only way that we're going to make any kind of um, substantial, meaningful evolutionary improvements to the situation Mm -hmm. is by acknowledging that the darkness that we experience in the world out there, like, in a, is, is not, is not out there, you know, that, that yeah. all of this, you know, if, if, if we, one of the, one of the sort of, uh, mind experiments that I, or like thought experiments that I, I find really useful in my own life is imagining that whether you want to talk about it as like, you're, you're in a dream right now, or that you've already died and this is in some way just all going off in your, you know, this, that basically that we all, everything we're experiencing is the, the content of an organic virtual reality system manufactured by the brain, you know? Mm-hmm. So in that sense, all of this is inside of us in, in like a, you know, practical neurological kind of way that, that nothing, that everything that we experience is out there is something that is manufactured by something that is actually inside of our, the envelope of our skin, you know, like in your skull. So, uh-huh. so like Hitler is in some weird way sort of a, uh, like a, a historical program that is, comp- that is, created by the distributed computing of everyone that remembers Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> On yeah. like some sort of crazy cosmic level that, that <laughs> like, or like uh, Paul Levy was this writer back in 2003, wrote a great article called the madness of George W. Bush. And it was about how, uh, when we project authority into this, uh, like virtual, outside you know this virtual Mm -hmm. other space that that we get that basically that george bush was a a symptom of this disease riddling the american psychology which was the need to see uh, evil as something happening outside of us so you know this this whole issue with terrorism you know and and like looking for you know, specific groups or individuals to vilify and to target 
and to declare that these, these that's the problem over there. But then, mm. you know, that's what George Bush did, but then so many of the American people blamed him. And it's like, well, you, you're not, the, the problem there is that you're not taking responsibility, you know, mm-hmm. for your own evil, for your own, although small, like a bit torrent, like tiny little, you know, 350 million people seeding this giant bit torrent of, you know, American governance or whatever, that all of us are participating in this system. We're not, we, we cannot extract ourselves authentically from the system that, you know, that feeds, that, you know, that sells guns to terrorists, that yeah. starves countries and creates these desperate situations where people decide to rise up violently, you know, and, and ultimately we're putting, you know, like, it's, it's like witch doctor nonsense to put all of our faith in the, you know, the alpha male at the prow yeah. of our ship and then blame them when things go wrong. <laughs> you, it's like whether or not we even elected him legally, you know, whether or not that was a, that, that election was a, a, a fraud or what, the fact yeah. of it is that we gave him our power psychically, like psychologically, we invested in him whether or not we voted for him, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and that kind of thing is, and then we did it again with President Obama, and we're, we're going to do it again with the next president. I was just going to say, Michael, this is this has been a continuous process for generations and generations. Like long before, long before um, uh, President Bush, and it's going back into the days of Julius Caesar when he was being being classed as this great leader, and even Marcus Aurelius, uh, he was thought of as this godlike approach to um, man. Yeah. And we always put these people on a pedestal, yeah. and we believe that they have the answers. They can lead us to victory. That's why, but then, I think as well, we started to like realize that these, we started to take more of a democratic approach to thinking as where we all try to work together. And there may be a lot of arguing and commitment, um, arguing and disagreements, but at the end of the day, they, they do come to a solution, whether it's the right one or the wrong one, <laughs> but at least they've discussed it and it's not just one, yeah, one person. Perspective. Yeah, one perspective making a decision. Yeah, yeah well... But, I mean that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sir. I was just going to say, like, like um, dictatorships have never seemed to to work in history, whereas always the democratics have sort of like expanded and reached out more to us. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, you know, there was. I think you, if you overlay that conversation on top of what you know, what we see the evolution of of governance and and social structure over the last few thousand years, it's like. Uh, with uh, the way that an individual psychology develops, you know, this is something that that uh, we get at at the time. You know, like you look at ancient Egypt or or ancient Greece. You know, there or like early early Greece. It's like there was only one guy in the whole room. You know, like history yeah. only history only talks about the pharaoh. Really, like all of these people that were that were uh, required to sustain this monarchy weren't really considered uh, of historical significance, you know. Yeah, it's like it's like the it's like the real warriors get forgotten. Yeah, but it's but at the same time, it's like 
what the movement the movement that we're still sort of shuddering through in geopolitics now this movement from an autocratic centralized government to a distributed collaborative government mm-hmm. um whether or not that actually looks like what we call democracy when everything is said and done mm-hmm. um is the movement from it's like it, it mirrors or it's it it's a uh, a fractal i guess of what we see in like the way that we put truth together as tiny as small children and like the way that that when you're a very small you can't understand how someone else sees the world at all and that as we get older, our ability to take the perspectives of other pe- people grows. And so we're no longer experiencing ourselves as the center, the, un- the unquestioned center of the universe. Mm-hmm. You know, and like maybe the next step for us is to make that leap as a species and recognize that we could be granting personhood and uh, possibly, you know, the privileges of political participation to other animals like dolphins and, and whales and gorillas and, and that, you know, that we're, the, the process seems to be about, you know, that when the Pharaoh was the only ego in the entire community, of course he's the only one worth telling a story about, you know, Mm, it's like the only, the only name in the room, but there's, there's, that that again is the way that you know everyone else in the society needed at that time like at that time it was the most sophisticated form of consciousness maybe that recognized a link between anyone and divinity you know yeah. that that it was that they were still they were still participating in it but only in in terms of like their role with respect to this central organizing figure, yeah, I like I like that. I think as well that could be that that's sort of similar to our society now as well. Yeah, that people just people just play along because they think they have to. Well, it's so, the celebrity game. Yeah, something that you touched on there, like Michael, was when you we talked when we talked before about like putting people on a pedestal, like George W. Bush, and, and we blame them for like, um. For what happens in in our, our country and stuff like that, but uh, sort of saying like we've always put someone on a pedestal. Like when we were born, we we're always taught to listen to our parents, and we always look to them for leadership. And then when we went to school, we looked to the teacher, and the teacher had control of the class. So the teacher was always the teacher was right, and we were always there to listen. Mm-hmm. And then when we have to get to a job, we have to li- listen to a manager, and then we are still the servants, and then. When you get to a manager, you have to talk to another manager who's ahead of you. And yeah. you're always in this realm of thinking, well, someone's better than me. Or there's someone I need to pay yeah. attention to. You've always got to answer to yeah. someone. So it's hard to like get this whole democratic approach when we've been born with a dictatorship style of listening well, through our whole existence. Well, there are natural hierarchies. I mean, there's a difference between like an imposed military style hierarchy and mm. the like the hierarchies that we see in nature where you know there's only one trunk but there's many branches on a tree mm-hmm. or yeah. like when they study uh the spread of diseases you know for example like with aids there was a patient zero they don't know who this person was 
but they were able to figure out that this this one person was sleeping with like 300 different people a year. And some mm -hmm. people are just naturally more promiscuous. This is the problem with trying to get rid of the trying to to attack and and replace leadership because there were there's just in natural systems in like the way that networks work there's always going to be people that are more connected that are that have more wealth you know flowing through their their, their networks but that doesn't necessarily mean that you know we confuse uh natural leadership with uh, like making a moral claim that these people are better people than we, everyone else. And that's where it's got to, that's where we've got to like cut the thread, you know, as we, we come to, you know, find, cause like, I think as far as like what, what a new internet age democracy might look like, it's one where you can donate your votes to someone that you believe is an expert in the particular topic you know, because none of us are really qualified. The problem with re representative government or, or even like a voting body right now is that these situations are so complicated. We need the people that that have the expertise to be the ones making the decisions. But we have no way. But but we, what we hire are these generalist, you know, parliamentary members or or, or you know rep state representatives that their specialty is playing the games of politics. It's not knowing how to address any of the particular problems in society. Yeah. Mm. And it's like if instead of having representatives, you know, maybe like an issue would come up to be discussed by the entire population of a country. I, and then, I that's gonna say. Yeah, and then everybody um, would say, oh, well, geez, who is the expert on, on uh, you know, genetics so that we can have this conversation about whether it's biological ethical mm -hmm. to harvest stem cells well we should be you know we should be giving our votes to the people that are that have the scientific expertise but are not uh being like funded behind the curtain by you know big big pharmacy corporations or whatever you know and, mm -hmm. and just being able to uh recognize that there are there is such a thing as natural leadership or expertise um you know, elder status. Like we need elders in our society. We need people that can that can speak from a position of authority. But we also need to understand that these are not like a special class of human beings with magical powers. You know, and that yeah. that we you know that everyone has the potential, at least, to to be uh, a better. You know, to be more of a leader. To to be more of a an, an expert, you know, to, to step forward into, yeah. into that role. When you said stepping into that role, in a way I think it's about tapping into our potential. And something that comes up in my mind is how we, I think we have this ability to tap into our genetics and tap into areas within our DNA. And something that gets me a lot is how many scientists are quick to presume that the remaining 97% of junk DNA, they call it, was given the unscientific title of junk because... Secular biologists felt that over evolutionary time, the DNA had lost its function. And I think over time, we will actually realise it's not junk DNA. And it all has great potential. We just need to learn and figure out how to tap into it. Well, junk DNA is such a nonsense term. Yeah, yeah it's so, it's, it's, it is uh, in, uh, in your colloquialism, it's, it's bollocks, right? Yeah. So, like, <laughs> we don't, like... 
it, it's just silly, you know, for us to assume that something that is the case is un, unnecessary, that anything is unnecessary. I feel like with the human body, it's like we, we like took a piece of furniture. We got a piece of furniture in the mail and we've got to put it together and mm-hmm. we like put it together and we're like, well, we, we have all these parts left over, but they must not be yeah. useful. Let's just throw them out. You know, mm-hmm. it's like how modern medicine works. It's like, ah, well, yeah, we don't need that. And then we find out, you know, 10 years later, oh, yeah. the appendix was actually producing chemicals that, you know, regulated the body. And, like, we probably shouldn't have removed that, uh, you know. <laughs> it's probably the same with, D- with, with our DNA. Like, just because we don't understand it, that, that should be uh, – we should take the hint that, that that means that we should be approaching this mystery with respect – not just like, oh, maybe we can create a person with only 5% of the, the DNA that a person has. Yeah. It, it seems just totally uh, like that. that's the kind of thinking that got us into this mess. Yeah. You know? Hey, Michael, I'd just like to know your thoughts on evolution and uh, improvisation. Oh, yeah. You know, for me, the, the, the two are really like one thing, right? Uh-huh. So... In, in improvisation, like evolution is is an, a form of improvisation, in the sense that it's not anticipating its next move. You know, uh-huh. um, evolution or like person like artistic improvisation. Like I, I'm a you know I do, a lot of my my musical performances are you know I'm up there with the guitar and the voice and I've got all these pedals set up and I'm looping myself and I'm I'm layering different channels of of live sampled music and and remixing everything on the fly but when i when i am really uh on it when i'm really getting into that that flow that it is it is a flow state you know and i'm not really thinking about it i'm i'm just constantly responding in this this uh it is kind of like surfing in that in that sense because there's so much going on that it I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to track it all in real time. It, just like walking or, or, or uh, you know, playing a piano. Like if you're really sitting there thinking about everything. And so in that sense, like if you were to look at what's going on inside of my brain or really inside of any of our brains at any time, what you yeah. see are these little, it's like a fireworks show of these little ideas that start to form. And then they suggest themselves and they're they're sort of there's a way that you can talk about the way that the brain works where it's it's like an ecosystem of ideas or or uh, actions mm-hmm. that are cooperating and competing and expressing or not expressing you know lasting surviving dying out yeah, I was just—I was going to say, Michael, as well. I think that what you were saying there about expressing—I think these ideas are sort of like expressing themselves through us, yeah, through our through our, through our human form. Yeah, so you know, there's the link, like the the obvious link that I would point to between evolution and improvisation is in inventions mm-hmm. and how you know. 20 people around the planet will come up with the same idea at the same time. You know, that's, uh, for example, uh, Thomas Edison was the 23rd person to file 
something resembling a light bulb. You know, and like his is the one that we remember because he got the furthest with it. Like he was the one that was actually able to to bring it to market. Uh-huh. But what? But it's like the world was just ripe for this idea, and this idea, like the conditions were suited for it. And so, in the same way that like the wings of a of a bird or a bat or a flying fish all sort of resemble one another because the conditions in which they developed are similar. They're, they're operating under the same laws of physics. And it's like these ideas, when, when society gets to a place where that, that idea is ripe and it's low-hanging and, and we can reach up and grab it, and then you know, 20, 20 people reach up and, and grab it at the same time. And so there's this sense that, that uh, the the evolutionary process that we see going on at the micro scale in the, the ideas that we possess in the, the way that our immune systems, uh, you know, there's, there's like, if you think about like a jungle, where like all these animals are evolving new, you know, new chemical attacks and defenses and stuff that's going on in our bloodstream all the time. Yeah. And, and so the same processes that lead us or, or that, that are, you know, uh, what we would say they're responsible for uh, or behind the mechanisms of creative action are the same mechanisms operating within each of us that we call evolution when we're looking at organisms interacting with one another in an environment. And so it's, it's kind of a, you know, evolution is the scientific description of this thing and improvisation is the artistic description of this thing, but it's, it's really just it's it seems like the same the same uh process the same kind of mm. you know things come together and interact in a way that produces you know quote unquote successful cooperations you know and yeah things spread in a in in a way where like the you know the lung looks the same as a river basin and you know, it's all the same, the same laws and processes at work. Mm. Well, Michael, <laughs> you just have an, a wonderful ability to articulate the difficult and complex divinity of this world. Oh, You're thank you. Absolutely mind-blowing. And thank you for your words and the energy behind them. You navigate with grace and wisdom. Michael, so on that note, where can people find you and what are you currently working on? Oh, well, uh, I have a, an email newsletter that I've been posting for the last eight years. It's up at michaelgarfield.net. If people want to stay abreast of all of that, there's music that goes out through that letter. There's a lot of, uh, painting and, and writing and, and I'm not, I don't know that it's all of it's going to appeal to every single person. Right. You know, but hopefully one of them catches you because we're all, you know, some of us are more visual or some of us are more auditory people. And, you know, it's all I'm really trying to say the same thing in all of these different styles and all these different media. And hopefully that uh, that connects with you, you know, so you can find me uh, at michaelgarfield.net. You can look me up on 
Facebook, if you if you want to guarantee that you'll never see anything I ever post again, <laughs> <laughs> but you're welcome to you're welcome to subscribe there and get get my notifications if you want, or uh, on on YouTube, which I'm a little less uh, less uh, regular about posting videos, but I, that's probably where I would start people because I feel like bringing the art and the music and the and the writing together in some of those videos is sort of um, what what is the most coherent and and uh, provocative packaging of of this stuff? I'm not really working on anything new in particular right now, but I, it looks like I might actually be gearing up to start a podcast of my own here in the next couple of weeks. So oh. if uh, if that does happen, I'll be sure to let you know. And and in the meantime, I really uh, am grateful to you guys for taking the effort, not just with me, but with all your other, your guests to, to make okay. something that will inspire people and empower them and, and, and get people to think, um, a little bit more and, and live a little bit more. And it's really cool that you're doing this. So thanks. Oh, well, thanks, Michael. Michael, oh, it's safe to see you. Thank you for being a big part of this. Well, thank I'm, you. I'm, I'm delighted you guys found me and, and hopefully we'll, we'll stay friends and stay in touch. Yeah, Definitely will. Michael. Thank you, Michael. Have, thanks, Michael. Have a great day, you guys. Thank you for taking time out to listen. Head over to beastified.com for other previous episodes. And while you're at it, tell a friend about the podcast. Let's keep pushing forward as human beings. And together, we can improve this experience and enjoy this journey.